Welcome to In Search of the Mind of God. We invite you to search with us the mind of God. When searching His Word, we can always be sure of our salvation will not be used on man's ideas or false feelings. It will never be our purpose to promote any denominational doctrine of any religious group. Man is fallible. God is not. This program is brought to you by the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. We are located at 384 East Midway Road here in White City, Florida. This program contains previous recordings from Joe Wilson, who graduated from this life in 2018. We invite you to join us for worship. Personal Bible study is available, and we propose to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. study the Word of God, because there are things that we need to know and understand that may help us better ourselves in living the Christian life. Some of those things are held in the Scriptures, in the book of Ephesians, and in other places, and tonight I want to talk to you about these things. If you'll turn with me to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and uh, We'll begin with verse 24, Ephesians 4, 24. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption." As I was reading and studying and going over these verses of Scripture, there was one thing that I got in my mind that I had never thought of before. And that is, what would it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? And as I looked up the Word, I was surprised at what I found. Found. I'd often thought that grieving the Holy Spirit would anger him and cause him not to be a friend that we need so much in our endeavor to live the Christian life. I'd often thought that if he was angered as a human in a fit of anger, he may, as we are told in many instances, leave. For if the grieving would be angry he wouldn't stay around where he would be bothered by those who had that type of attitude concerning him or his message that was given but I was interested to find out that the word grieving means to make him sorry to cause him to be sorrowful to allow him 
to have a broken heart. I would have never thought that God would be in a frame of mind to have a tender heart. That we actually could do something that would offend him to the point that it would put sorrow in his heart through our unbelief and disobedience. Why would it be that the Holy Spirit would have sorrow because of our disobedience? Well, the impure language, the bitter and angry words against one another, the stealing, the laziness, and refusing to work in the cause of Christ, by the Spirit that indwells us, is supposed to be forgotten. We're to forget the fuss and the bicker and the contri- and the, those words which cause a lot of heartache and feeling one with another. Because if we don't do that and we're not consistent in being a part of what the Spirit of God has intended us to be, we actually grieve or we put sorrow through our unbelief and disobedience into his mind. Now watch what happens when that occurs. As we grieve the Holy Spirit, by which we are sealed into the day of redemption, what do we do to probably the greatest friend that we have after obedience to the gospel has been consummated? For you see, it's the Holy Spirit that we receive after we're baptized into Christ. Having been baptized into Christ, we start on a new journey. This is a journey that takes a lot of times all the effort that we have in order to make it a successful ride. In this journey, we are beset on each side by a lot of things that come and go in the world. We're accosted by Satan and his forces. We're set against a being that is of might and power that we have no way to comprehend, even Satan. And as we're in this battle trying to gain an eternal habitation with God, the closest friend that we have that is one who indwells our being is the Holy Spirit. Ah, how many times in raising children or being around people that you're trying to help or trying to do some good for, do you get to the place where they can just break your heart because they don't do what you know they can do if they really tried to be the best they could be? They just seem to always be lagging. I never really, 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 really able to, in their own mind and heart, to do the job that has to be done. They stall. You know, that's a tactic that a lot of people use in the workforce and in Christianity, unfortunately. They stall. They don't want to get the job done. They don't want it to be done. So therefore, they put on the brakes They don't always tell you that they're doing that. And the consequence and the results are that if they had done as they were supposed to have been 
commanded to do, they would have completed the task, it would have been successful, and happiness would have been with everybody that was in the position that needed to be in. But by the very fact that they put it in stall gear, or they slow it down, or they hold back, or they just won't do what they know that can be done, just causes a sadness and causes people who could have the joy of being involved in that association no longer to be happy and free. Now, when we sin, of course we offend God the Father. But it is nowhere that I know of, and I learn every day, so it may be tomorrow I will find it. There is nowhere that I know that we grieve God the Father. When we sin, we show lack of respect to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a great love. That somebody would love us to the extent that they would go through that kind of pain and anguish, torture and misery. And then because of that love, only command us to do things which are good for ourselves. For our benefit. For our help. And we turn around and sin. Are we so lack of respect or disobedience for the great fact that Jesus died on Calvary for our sins to be forgiven? And then we think of the Holy Spirit, never having thought of it as it is spoken here, because it never looked up the word, to be honest with you, in the Greek language. I had already been told and had the idea in mind that grieving the Spirit would anger him. And because of his anger and because of his rejection by the heart of the individual in which he dwelt, that he would leave. And when he would leave, you'd be on your own without help to fight the good fight of faith, to lay hold of eternal life. But it had never come to my mind that it would cause him sorrow. That the very friend who as going to God the Father in our behalf and speaking in words which we can't utter and understanding the needs before we understand them and asking for those things which we know not that we have need of. I mean, how much closer and better friend have you ever had in this world? Look with me to the book of Romans, the 8th chapter. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing by inspiration of the Spirit, tells the story. In the 26th verse, he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, this word helpeth is the Greek word lumbano, and it means he comes along beside and picks us up when we cannot carry the burden all alone. You know, Jesus has said, Come unto me, all ye that weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you'll find rest to your soul." That's in Matthew eleven thirty two, if I remember correctly. But the fact is that Jesus didn't tell how this burden was going to be aided in carrying. So we find out in the study of the scriptures in the New Testament covenant that it's the Spirit. Now the Spirit, of course, is that being who is God, who the Bible tells us is given to all them that obey God. 
The Spirit is not just there for kicks and grins. He's there because we are the ones whom God has decided to make sure that we can get to heaven and do the will of God and find eternal happiness and peace there in the presence of God. But when you have somebody who, like the Spirit of God, can come and help you bear a burden, how many times have you ever considered what a great blessing that is? There's a lot of people in this world that have nobody to help them bear their burdens. They have nobody that comes along to try to help them in a time of need. But we, as children of God, because we receive the Spirit, are they which God has given us a means by which our burdens can be lighter. I, a lot of times, think of the verse of Scripture when the Bible says there is no sin that we commit that God can't forgive, and there's no burden that we have that He won't help us bear. And then I understand that the means by bearing this burden is he who resides in our hearts. Oh, what a, a brave being the Spirit of God is to come into a tortured, wretched, disobedient, and aggravated soul and heart that has been disobedient to the law of God. And as you come into that place or into that soul, you find yourself in a strange place. Unlike God in almost any fashion, it's described in uh, Ephesians 4 by the verbiage, by the attitude, by the bickering, by the fighting. None of these things are like God. And yet the Spirit of God is given to all those having been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins immediately. And he enters into that kind of heart. And when he enters into that kind of heart, anticipating with joy an association and a dwelling that is consistent with the attitude of God, you can always tell that he's got a positive attitude in a way of trying to encourage and strengthen and cause us to live the Christian life. And the things that will deter or cause that to not be true are the things that are mentioned in the 26th through the 30th verses of Ephesians 4. You get somebody that's fussing all the time or, or bickering all the time or that's refusing to do the work that's supposed to be done or just plain old lazy and resort to stealing instead of working for a living or that have bitter and angry words, words that are intended to maim and to harm. These kind of people just not are not those who possess the means or the attitude that God is and has. And yet here is where the Spirit is thrown in the world in which he has entered. And he has to arise from the bottom of the heap because all of the things in that heart has to be changed. All the means of expression has to be altered. All the attitude toward those who are trying to live the Christian life has to be adjusted. So there's no bickering or fussing. So there's no 
attitude of resentment when somebody doesn't do what you consider that should be done, even though they may not know you know it, or it needs, that you know it needs to be done. But the Spirit of God comes into that life, starting at the bottom of the heap, and works his way up to the top, to where he, become, he is then seated on the throne room of that heart. And in the seated on the throne room of that heart, he can give directions. He can alter attitudes. He can change the wording. He can stop the mean, spirited, uh, despiteful, bickering, and fussing. And about the time he, he gets to where he thinks maybe that the control is within his power, and the process is that that's going to be successful, all of a sudden, we grieve him. We break his heart. We put him to sorrow through unbelief and disobedience. By that impure language, by those bitter and angry words against others, by stealing or laziness, or fussing and bickering, and the Bible says he is grieved. But he's the one that makes our prayer life successful. I don't know how you feel when you go before God the Father. Maybe you don't take it as an attitude that should be taken where you're incapable of expression. Where you really don't know how that you can discuss things with a being of such might and grandeur. And valor, where you're concerned about not saying the right words or at the right time, or even if God may not appreciate your candor or words that you say, and there's somebody that attends you in that prayer. Oh, I know it's because of Jesus Christ we can get into the room, but it's through the Holy Spirit we can express what our heart needs to express. So the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. Now listen to the next phrase. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. As incapable as we are, getting into the presence of God is so much of an astounding thing that we often consider it beyond possibility. But when you get there, you get tongue-tied. Or you're incapable of saying what you intended to say. Or maybe, as it is said here, for we don't know for what we should pray. I know we, a lot of times, judge ourselves and adjudicate ourselves to the fashion that we think we know the best for ourselves. You know, the person that's the saddest in this world is the person that knows all that they need to know, and all that they need to know is that they know all things. My grandfather used to have some trite sayings, and one of the sayings was, is the fool is the one who opens his mouth to remove all doubt. There's a lot of people that remove any doubt about the fact that they're fools when you hear them talk. And he had another thing. 
He that thinketh he knows, knows that he doesn't know, knows that he doesn't know what he thinks he knows, and knows that he doesn't know what he thinks he knows, and therefore won't speak when he doesn't think he should speak. Well, imagine coming into the presence of God. Imagine gaining that realm where perfection and purity and bliss and joy and happiness and peace are the run of the day. And you come in out of the world. And as you get there, if you can recognize who you're before and where you are and what you're doing, what would you say to a being of that capacity? How would you express yourself? Well, then there's another thing. The Holy Spirit speaks in the language of God. We don't. You see, all of us have a capacity to express ourselves in a language, some two, maybe three languages. And if you can express yourself in those languages, that communication is so much better with people who speak that kind of language. It doesn't do me a lot of good to go on a job site where somebody speaks a completely different language than I do because we have immediately a problem. Linda and I were at a place yesterday to eat lunch, and a woman was talking in something I'd never heard before. And it wasn't Spanish, and it wasn't uh, uh, the language of the Haitian people. It was something of a clandestine language that was in her area in which she lived. And nobody there could understand what she was saying. I never felt so bad for people in my life. And one night I went to a restaurant and there were some people of Spanish descent who couldn't speak a word of English that came into the restaurant to order food. Put yourself in that position. What would you say? Well, whatever you'd say, the people that you're speaking to won't understand it. If they don't understand it, you can't communicate what you want. They couldn't even tell them they wanted a hamburger. Or a hot dog. They couldn't express. And they were so miserable. And so was the poor waitress. They were so held back. They were so frustrated. That if the woman had brought them a glass of water. It would have been a victory. Because they just couldn't communicate. And they didn't know. So if they couldn't communicate. And they couldn't know. How could they get what they wanted? You understand? Well, imagine going before God and not being able to speak the tongue or the language that God speaks, not knowing how to communicate with him and not understanding what is in your best interest, things to say, and worse than that, not even knowing what you need when you get there. Well, then the Spirit comes along. And he prays for us as we ought to pray. He takes over in charge and prays in our behalf, standing by our side, helping us in the greatest time of need. And he makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He speaks to God in the language that God speaks, that of the Spirit. 
We've seen times in Jesus' earthly life where he would be so moved that he would groan within himself. And somebody standing by would think, well, you know, there was a, some uh, a, a lightning or thunder that was uh, uh, what they heard. But really, it was a language. Let me show you. Turn back with me to the book of John, the 11th chapter. Just for one place I remember right now. And when Jesus came to the grave of Lazarus, it says in verse 38, Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. You know what he was doing when he was groaning in himself? He was speaking a language that we can't comprehend. He was speaking the language of the Spirit, the language of God. And it was at the cave where the stone lay. As he was speaking this language, he was so moved that he had wept because of the inability of man to know what God had prepared and that death was not his end. But the Spirit of God, when we go to God the Father in prayer and we gain admittance there to Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, to that great place of forgiveness if we don't speak the language how can we communicate the need if we don't know what to say how can we get the food that we order if we can't communicate stating those things that are in our best interest asking for those things that basically are what we really need to ask for instead of wasting time. You ever hear people that get to talking and all they do is run their mouth. They never ever say anything that's worthwhile and they could just seem to go on forever and ever. They never actually get down to exactly what is needed to be said. Imagine tiring God the Father in his presence with verbiage that's silly and useless. This is the person being part of the Godhead who goes to God the Father with us and aids us and coming along beside us and expresses to God the Father what we need. And what we need is maybe what we don't even know we need, but he knows it. Because he has judged our heart and seen our incapacities and our lack of attentiveness to detail. I know that there's things that we don't even know we have need of. He steps up to the pump. Or as they say in our modern society, he's got our back. He'll stand there speaking in groanings and moanings which cannot be uttered. Speaking to God of things we don't know that we have need of. Speaking, asking for those things which are in our best interest and on our best behalf. And then you want to bring sorrow to a being of this magnitude? You want to grieve him? You want to put him out? Because of your unbelief and disobedience? 
You want to make yourself not the friend of the greatest help that you have available, but you want to insult and impugn and speak harshly and rashly against the God that you're serving and he is trying to help you to get to heaven to spend eternity with. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the best advice I guess we could have for the night. If you're going to grieve anybody, don't grieve the Spirit. Look at what he does. Look at how he helps. Look how he comes along and picks us up and puts us in a position we need to be in. Look how he makes that time before God the Father effective and productive in behalf of our soul. And then if there's any way that you can satisfy, impress, show adoration for, love, confidence by obedience, it should be in the message being obeyed that the Holy Spirit has allowed us to receive. Because the best and the closest associate of the Godhead that we have is the one that abides in our heart. Now, if that doesn't then come about, we have a problem maybe we don't know that we have that we can't handle. Jesus said, if any man love me, my Father and I will come and dwell in him. Uh, by the way, how is it that Jesus said he, he knew that if you loved him, if you love me, keep my commandments. The commandments were those things that were given by the Holy Spirit. The commandments were communicated by the Spirit to man. It's no wonder that the Holy Spirit can speak in 16 or 17 different languages on the day of Pentecost and never be confused in either one of them. Because he was able to do what God insisted be done. And that man could be spoken to on man, in man's own language, in man's own tongue, to hear the wonderful words of the Lord. And yet, he could speak as God. And he, speaking as God, becomes the greatest help in making our prayer life effective. I hear people every once in a while tell me, well, Joe, I just don't believe my prayer life is effective. Well, there may be a reason. That reason may be your lack of obedience. That reason may be the attitude with which you address prayer. Or that reason is you may have grieved the Holy Spirit. And the grieved spirit is not one who can help you do what you need to have done just in prayer. And that's all we've discussed tonight. But just in prayer so that you can be what you're supposed to be. So if there's anybody's words you want to listen to, it should be the words of the Holy Spirit. If there's anybody's address that you need to pay attention to, it's the address or the message of the Spirit of God. If there's anybody that you want to express love to and confidence 
and to have security as you travel the road of life, it's the Holy Spirit. Because the advantages of the Spirit of God living in our hearts can only be magnified when our hearts can have that expression of what we need even though we don't know it so that God the Father will allow it and give it when in prayer before him we go. Grieve not the Spirit of God. Why? And I don't have time to go into this tonight. Whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Oh, that's just part two. And one of these days we'll get back to that part. Look what he's done other for you. Sealed you. Secured you. Guaranteed you. And confirmed the fact that you are a child of God that are in the need of help. Of which... He is the greatest benefactor. If you're here tonight, though, as you live the Christian life and you've forgotten that some of these things you need to pay attention to, I want you to give it some reconsideration. Don't be mean-spirited. Don't be evil-tongued. Don't just want to bicker and fuss and complain and cause people to be uneasy just so and because you can. Have the love of God and be obedient to that power that is addressing your life through the words written in a book we call the Bible so we all can spend eternity with him. If you're here and need to be obedient to the gospel, Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Will you come as we stand and sing? As we continue to grow the church and carry the legacy of Joe David Wilson, in this next segment, you will hear sermons from the current preachers here at the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. Good evening and welcome back this evening to the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. Again, it is always our pleasure, and I can't stress this enough, for we only worship by book, chapter, and verse. There's nothing else we have the authority to use for our spiritual counsel. This evening, I want, to tell you, I want to talk to you about something I've been working on for a while, and it's been a continual thought. We kind of went over a little bit this morning. But uh, the title of this sermon is Diagnosing and Treating Your Spiritual Heart Disease, or Heart Symptoms. Remember this morning I kind of touched on the heart disease with spiritual heart disease being those that did not care or want to have anything to do with the Lord. Those that would run off or dismiss themselves from services without any uh, type of remorse or uh, anything that caused them any, any type of feeling. Tonight I want to kind of expound more upon that. The spiritual heart is widely misunderstood in our day, and our major problem with regard to being sound and faithful has to do with the heart problems. You see, we always find that we can teach the gospel. I can sit up here and preach to my boat, my face is blue. He that believeth and is baptized can be saved. I can line them up and baptize every one of them so they can obey the gospel calling. But what happens afterwards? That's where we always miss it. You see, the folks come in, they're excited, they're hot to trot, they're on the front pew this week. Next week, they're on the second pew. Six weeks later, they're in the middle of the service. By week 12, they're standing at the door with one foot out the door, one foot in, waiting for the, waiting for the shotgun blast to go off so they can hit the car and get out the door. What is the problem here? Why is it that some of us stick and some of us don't, for lack of better terminology? 
It's heart disease. Many are dying spiritually each day because of the moral heart disease. A great process through many have been, ma- uh, have been made understanding and disorders of the physical heart. So we've, we've come a long way from day one to now diagnosing and treating heart disease. Now I've got a bunch of nurses in the audience. Go ahead and give me a rattle if that's true. There have been great leaps and bounds have been uh, brought us to a point where a bypass surgery has about the same risk as an appendectomy. Did I say that right? All right. The moral center of man's being has been shrouded in myth and fiction. You see, the problem is they all want us to say, oh, well, I can't see your soul. I can't smell your soul. I can't see the spirit. I can't smell the spirit. So it's not there. It's something in fantasy land. So they've caused us to believe that this is of less importance in the physical body. But this is absolutely not true. The spiritual heart, like the physical heart, is constructed of four chambers. All four chambers have a distinct function. Each must be kept in proper working order to ensure a healthy heart. Your physical heart has four chambers. I'm going to keep asking you to shake your head to make sure I got these facts right. The two upper are called called the arteria. Atria. Atrium? Atrium, okay. Lower are called the ventricles. Now, I knew that one. The four chambers to the spiritual heart are the digestive chamber, the combustion chamber, the judicial chamber, and the executive chamber. Now let's begin to study the four chambers of this heart, of the man's moral heart, and notice that when we keep this in good working order, we'll be the kind of Christian God wants and God wants us to be. Now the intellect, this is where denominationalism a lot of times starts to confuse and cloud the issue, pervert the message of of God's gospel truth. What they try to do is they try to use intellect and have man overthink it and add to it, and next thing you know, you've got a, you've got a heart disease in one part of your heart. But the intellect is, is the digestive chamber of the spiritual heart. This chamber equips man for three activities, knowing, thinking, and understanding. Its function for a moral man is closely akin to that of the digestive organs for a physical man. It is not just a receptacle, but a facility for knowledge, just as a stomach is not just a silo, but a refinery for food. The intellect collects and stores. It knows. It chews and breaks down. It thinks. And it distributes and assimilates. It understands. The information and experience gathered through the five senses. Faith is an act of intelligence not an act of emotion. Amen? Paul said, For with the heart man believeth. Romans chapter 10, verse 10. Paul is speaking of the intellect because the faith of the intellectual uh, persuasion is based on knowing, thinking, and understanding the evidence of God or about God. Romans 10, 17 says, Now listen. And what you'll understand is this verse in a different context. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
by having this intellect, you're not understanding with emotion. You're understanding with intelligence. Therefore, faith cannot be any way to be saved, not by faith alone. The intellect will tell us to command the obedient, or command the commands given to us by God, and that is baptism for the remission of sins. There are three rules for the care of intellect that correspond to the three God-given faculties that it processes. Just like in our physical body, we need a proper diet, proper exercise, and proper clothing. The proper diet for intellect is the truth. John 8.32 says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. John 14 and verse 6 says, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The proper exercise for this intellect is a study and meditation of the truth. 1 Timothy 4.13 Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. 2 Timothy 2.15, and if you're not familiar with how we study, I told you, we're going to burn the side of those pages up, because this is what we're here to do. Go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy 2.15 with me. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The only way to clothe the intellect and protect it from the hazards such as elements as falsehood and myths as by applying the truth to oneself. Now let me stop right there. Let me repeat that. Because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of meat on that bone still. The only way to clothe yourself. Now remember, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15 said what? Study to show thyself approved. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The next statement. The only way to clothe an intellect and protect yourself your spiritual heart, from hazards such as elements as false doctrine and myths is by applying this truth to yourself. Now, the next part of the heart, because remember, we do have four chambers to go through still. The emotion is the combustion chamber of the spiritual heart. As the word emotion suggests, it is a portion of the heart that moves man. The emotions are fueled by the intellect. The information and experience gathered through the five senses and digested by the intellect feed and ignite the reactions within the emotion chamber. These reactions, or emotions, then spark a chemical change within the body that turn, that turn on a man for action, to flee, to fight, to cry, to rejoice, to love. So the intense and physiological changes that accompany that emotion that ancients defined as a seed of emotion in the belly of the lions. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1.13. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. What we'll do is we'll go back to the Bible to reference our terminology and we'll listen to Peter, what he said. Because after all, Peter's a whole lot better man than I was. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He couldn't make a mistake when he spoke and when it was recorded. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Wherefore, gird up the, lion, the lions of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This passage indicates that emotion, reaction, 
can, can and must be controlled. And it must be a controlled reaction which prepare a man to, to run the right direction, to turn a man towards repentance. A man controls his emotions by steering them with his intellect. He turns off his emotional burners by turning his head or attention and by refining the mixture of information and experience which fuel his emotion. A man controls his emotion by pondering wholesome things. As Mike read earlier this evening, Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think upon these things. Meekness or gentleness ID chiefly the virtue of the mastery of the emotions. A good example is Esau. We all remember the story of Esau, right? Esau came to his emotions, did not use his intellect, and sold his birthright for what? For a bowl of stew, for a pot of porridge, whatever you want to call it. We never master ourselves if we're a slave to another. The meek, on the other hand, will inherit the earth. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. Third part is a conscience. The conscience is the judicial, judicial chamber of the moral heart. The conscience is the apparatus that sits in judgment over man's actions. And is the reason described as, and this is the reason why it's described as a judicial chamber of the heart. As the judge of man's moral con uh, condition, it is constantly on watch, delivering its verdict on past, present, even future action. It commends or condemns past actions, accuses or excuses present conduct, and approves or disproves contemplated activity. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 says, "...which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness." And their thoughts, meanwhile, meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. The conscience is properly a judicial and not a legislative chamber. The conscience does not make laws. It only enforces them. The conscience must be informed properly of right and wrong, truth and falsehood, good and evil, sin and righteousness, vice and virtue. The conscience is good at judging and policing action, but is only dependable as a standard that has been taught. This is why it is so important when we study, we apply the truth to ourselves. Garbage in, garbage out. Truth in, truth out. The conscience, though, is a quite vulnerable thing and is subject to three sorts of injuries. An uneducated or a misinformed conscience, like an ignorant jury or a sleeping dog, will let a trespasser go free. It'll allow faith-only doctrine to exist inside of the Church of Christ. It'll allow special holidays that have no religious implications to be brought into the church building doors. It'll allow false doctrine to be taught at the pulpit. It'll allow grand 
themes like pianos, lights, my favorite fog machines, to be brought in so people can be entertained instead of learn the truth. Acts 26 and 9 says, I barely thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what Paul or Saul was saying. What he was doing is he was ignorant. He was misinformed. You remember the story of Saul. He was a zealot. He was chief of the Jews. He knew the law like the back of his hand. He was persecuting the church because he thought the church was a sect of Judaism that was liberal. And so what was he doing? If you read later on this chapter, which you're more than welcome to, he tells you in the next verse or two that he was throwing people in prison because they were teaching the truth. But see, he was ignorant until he repented and obeyed the gospel. And he says, I really thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because he thought he was doing the right thing, but he was ignorant. And until he learned the truth and applied it to himself, he could not repent. If regularly discarded and trampled upon like unshod feet, the conscience grows callous. After its blisters heal and becomes dull and insensitive. Ephesians 4.19 says, Who being past feeling have given themselves in the lasciviousness to work all in cleanliness and greediness. You see, as a child of God, the more we sit there in the pew, play on our phones, look at Amazon. By the way, tomorrow is Cyber Monday. The more we do anything except for listen to the preacher and the truth being taught, the more callous we become. Until one day, we miss the wake-up call. And we have the old dreaded saying, depart from me, I never knew you. The truth, brothers and sisters, is the friend of the conscious. And that means a lie is the worst enemy a conscience can have. Just like a false witness is a foe in the, in the court of law. For this reason, the conscience of liars and hypocrites are said to be seared. 1 Timothy 4.2 says now, and we're going to start at verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. Then the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience, conscience seared with a hot iron. The fourth part of the heart, because we're running low on time, is the executive chamber of the spiritual heart. Man is endowed with power of choice, and the will is a seat of that facility or that faculty. The other chambers of the moral heart are subject to will. The intellect empowers, the will makes informed decisions, but the attention of the intellect is turned by the will. Man decides with what, he, what to fill his intellect with, like what, he does, like what he likes to fill his belly with. By a pattern of choices, he develops habits, thoughts. Having understood a truth, he's decided to know what to do about it. While the will must push the intellect, it remains and it must restrain emotion. The emotions tug at the will like a horse at the reins, but the will is a saddle and tames the hearts or emotions by turning the head or the intellect this way and that. In that fact, 
we, see, we sometimes say to the impatient, and I know I've said it to my youngins, we tell them, hey, we're getting ready to go out the door. If it's somewhere they want to go, I can tell you right now, there's a, there's a dust trail from wherever they were to the front door. I'll say, hey, hold your horses. It's a, it's a term we use to, sell, to tell somebody how to use their will to control their emotion and their intellect. The conscience lobbies, the executive chamber, or the will to act in accord with justice. The will decided whether to heed or trample the appeals of the conscience. Furthermore, by an act of will, man applies the intellect to the training of his conscience, so that he chooses his counselors like a president chooses his cabinet. He can fill it with flatterers who always applaud him, or he can fill it with the truth or wise advisors who censor him when necessary. You see, folks, the spiritual heart and physical heart both have four chambers. The physical heart is a thing of wonder, but the spiritual heart is even more so. When we see how it's made, we learn how it functions, and we know the risk factors and understand how to take care of your moral heart, you can keep it healthy. The problem is, is man likes to decide to feed his own spiritual lust or his own physical lust to make sure that he's satisfied and not God. But when it comes time to obey the gospel, don't be caught with calloused heart or calloused feet or like I say, with your butt growing roots to the pew because those roots will grow you right down to hell and that's not where you want to be. If there's any of those that need to come forward this evening to obey the gospel calling, 1 Peter 3.21 says, The like figure wherein to baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. It's not because you need a bath. It's because you need to obey. With, you need to have the will to turn the conscience so the intellect can understand that you're obeying the commandments that God has given this way you can be in communion, you can be in communication and contact with God once again, and the sin is separated from your soul. Please come forward as the invitation is extended. If you enjoyed today's sermon, read our regularly updated blog for insightful articles by visiting us online at pslchurchofchrist.com. If you would like to watch previous sermons, they can be viewed on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash pslchurchofchrist. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pslchurchofchrist. Or, if you prefer to visit us in person to learn more on Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m., as well as Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and you can visit us at 384 East Midway Road next to Walgreens. See you next week.